Hey legend, in this episode, we are talking to Scott Young who wrote Ultra Learning. This guy is an ultra learner. He's well known for not just his best-selling books and being in the New York Times and being a you know really prominent blogger about learning, but he also took these incredible challenges, which we talk about a lot in the episode, which is firstly the MIT challenge where he took MIT's four-year undergraduate computer science degree in 12 months without going to any actual classes. He took a lot of flack from MIT students while he was doing it, but he you know nailed it, which is absolutely mind-blowing. I couldn't even do it in six years, let alone one. And then he also did a year without English where he went to Spain to speak Spanish. He went to Brazil, spoke Portuguese. In China, he spoke Mandarin. And in Korea, he spoke Korean, obviously. So this guy is absolutely nailing the art of learning and has a lot of knowledge to share with us as long as, as well as some really cool stories. So it was a lot of fun. It's not just about learning how to learn. Like he shared a lot of experiences and along this fun journey that he's had. So I hope you enjoy this episode. You can get a lot out of it. I personally love learning through stories. So it was a lot of fun. Take care. Scott, thanks for coming on. I'm really excited to get this opportunity to talk to you and, and dive deep on some really good stories and exciting things you've done in the in your journey. I'd love yeah, to know just, just a really quickly, what are you up to right now and what are you well known for? Wow. Yeah. Well, um, you know, we were just talking before we, we hit record here about how I just submitted the uh, manuscript for my next book that's coming, which is also going to be about learning. We'll probably touch on that a little bit later. Great title, um, by the way. Yeah. Thank you. Get better at anything. So it's uh, kind of the spiritual sequel to Ultra Learning. And I mean, the thing that I'm known for, I guess, is I, I write about learning a lot, which has sort of been the obsessive focus of my essay career over the last 15 years. But if I have to like pick like, what's my claim to fame? Usually people are like, oh yeah, you're that MIT challenge guy. Uh, that's, that's the thing if you kind of vaguely heard about me, um, is the thing I'm probably most well known for, which was, you know, starting when in my kind of early 20s, I did these learning challenges, which were these big year long efforts on my blog where I was documenting. So one of them, the MIT challenge was trying to learn MIT's four year computer science curriculum using just their free online resources over one year. And then I had another project with a friend where we went and traveled around and uh, we're trying to learn four languages in one year. And so the kind of gimmick, I guess, of that project was uh, that we weren't going to speak in English. So when we landed the country, we land in Spain, we're only going to speak in Spanish and we have like, you know, 15 hours of practice. So our Spanish is really bad. And it was amusing and fun, but um, it actually really worked. We, we were able to like have conversations and speak in, um, uh, it was Spanish, uh, Brazilian, Portuguese, Mandarin, Chinese, and uh, Korean were the languages we were learning. And um, you know, we have videos and so you can judge for yourself. I, I don't want to make any overly exaggerated claims. I think sometimes <laughs> language learning is going kind of one of these fussy things where like if you say, oh, I'm totally fluent in this after two months. And then there's the guy who studied it for 10 years is like, mm, do you know the you know word for pterodactyl or something like that? But, um, but in terms of like, I think what most people want when they're trying to learn a language is like, oh, I could go to this place and like just be functional. I could go to stores and ask for things. I could make friends and like it, it was totally at that level. So, so we can talk about that too. And, and I've also done other things. I, I have a project learning uh, quantum mechanics. I have a project learning portrait drawing. I have a project um, learning my wife's language. She's from uh, North Macedonia. And so 
uh, after my son was born in the peak of the pandemic, we did a little no English experiment at home for that too. So um, this has been kind of my claim to fame, I guess you could say, is taking on unusual self-directed learning projects. And that's sort of the topic of my book, Ultra Learning, which is about people who take on unusual self-directed learning projects and sort of trying to extract wisdom from their experiences. Love it. And what are you really looking forward to in the coming 12 months? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to my next book coming out because, as I said, that's been a, you know, we were talking in the shows, that's been a long process of, of writing that book. I'm uh, looking forward to doing a little bit of travel. I have two young kids, as uh, we were also talking about, and, um, you know, we haven't done as much travel between pandemic and two small babies, but I'm looking forward to maybe doing a little bit of traveling and uh, maybe, maybe even dust off a, a one of the languages that I've learned. And, you know, just uh, I'm, I'm always enjoying learning new things. So I never really know which, uh, which thing I'm going to try to take on next. But I'm always trying to learn new things. And so I'm sure in the next 12 months there's going to be something that catches my fancy and starts a little, you know, maybe slightly too obsessive project. <laughs> yeah. Where did that, like, original, was the MIT challenge the first one you did? Or, like, did you start this when you were younger and you were, yeah. like, okay, I mean, projecting? It was the first. it was the first public project. And, and I think this is something that's, like, important to bring up that, uh, you know, it's, it's very much like the, this, the thing that was motivating this was not just, oh, well, I just want to do this intense thing, like, in a vacuum. But also, I had been blogging, like, writing on a platform for, like, five years. And I'd been writing about learning. I'd been in school. I'd been writing about studying tips. And the thing that really caught my eye was around that time, you had people like Josh Kaufman's personal MBA, Benny Lewis had fluent in three months, uh, even people like like Steve Pavlina had a big thing where he like talked about his experience learning computer science and and math double major over three semesters. And I just thought, this is really cool. Like, is it like not just, oh, I'm going to just give you advice because I'm just some random guy on the internet, but like, I'm going to do it and talk about doing it. And, and I thought that was something that the blogging medium was particularly suited for. So I've always been interested in learning. I've always been, you know, the kinds of projects that undergirded these things were also things I was interested in when I was younger. Like I, when I was like 15, I was like trying to learn video game development. And so I remember trying to like, you know, to varying degrees of effectiveness, learning like programming and art and these kinds of things. So I don't want to say that, um, you know, this just came out of nowhere, but this was the first public project I did. It was very much modeled on like, okay, you set an ambitious target or you set some ambitious kind of idea for the project and then you talk about it while you're doing it. And, uh, and so this, that was the first big one I did. And it went really well, so I did another one, which was language learning, which was uh, also kind of evolved out of, I had a friend who was going to take a gap year, and he wanted to travel, and we were good friends, we were roommates, and I was like, well, what if we do something like this? And so we did that, but, um, you know, so it was really also just like an excuse to do like a world trip. It wasn't really, um, you know, oh, yes, I, I, I want to study these four languages, so I'm going to do it. It was just kind of like, where could we go that would be fun? And, you know, it would be a good experience. And, and then, you know, since the MIT challenge, since those projects, they kind of put me on the map a little bit of like maybe not just like some random college student has a study advice blog. Um, that has been a big part of, of what I've done. So as I mentioned, some of the other smaller projects I've done. And I mean, now I'm a bit older. I have two kids. So doing the like throw your entire life on the side and do some obsessive pursuit is a little harder now. But I mean, the spirit of it is is still there. It's always been there. So you know, right now I'm uh, right now I'm like working on improving my watercolor painting. I don't know whether I'll post something about that later. It's very much just for me. But that's one thing I'm doing. And um, 
you know, I'm, I'm sure there's going to be other things. I've also gotten a lot more into like reading research. <laughs> that wasn't something that I did before, but now when I'm like, you know, what is the best way to learn a language? So you get like, like three textbooks and you're like, I want to know everything that any smart person has ever said on this so I can, you know, talk about it intelligently. So that's also been something I, I more recently gravitated towards. Cool. What did you find hardest about doing the MIT challenging? Because you provide a bit of context, yeah. like coming from oh, yeah, somewhere sure. like Australia. MIT was like something I'd heard maybe in a movie. You know what I mean? I'm like, right, so there's right. no okay. context about how difficult it was. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So MIT is Massachusetts Institute of Technology. It's one of probably the best um, like STEM schools in the entire world. Um, it is uh, extraordinarily hard to get into. Uh, I think especially when you compare it to other Ivy League schools like uh, Harvard or something like that. I don't, I don't believe MIT does legacy admits. And so it's, it's like the more meritocratic maybe of the schools. It has more of a reputation for like, you know, even if you're smart, you can get bad grades. <laughs> Whereas, you know, Harvard tends to be a little bit softer on that. And um, so I, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm not actually an MIT student, so this is just my cultural impression. Um, and just from, you know, the little pitter-patter you hear in the online lectures. But the way that this project came about was I had done a business degree in school, uh, somewhat foolhardily thinking, oh, I want to be an entrepreneur. I should study business. Uh, turns out, no, <laughs> that's not always the best idea because business school is mostly training you to be a middle manager in a big corporation. And I only learned that kind of like halfway through, like, oh, oh, this is mostly HR classes. And stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wasn't, I was thinking this is like how to run a company. It's like, okay, here's how to set up, you know, standard operating procedures for this. So I, uh, I was a little disappointed, I guess, maybe after my undergraduate education, um, and I was thinking, oh, I should have learned computer science because then I could actually do something. Like I wouldn't just be like one of those talking head business guys. I'd actually be able to make the thing that I wanted to, to do. And, and um, it, it, was, it was something I'd always wanted to learn. I had been kind of tossing and turning between the two of them when I was going into school. But I mean, you know, I've already got a degree going back to school for another four years. And then, you know, like you're a mature student. You're kind of like, I don't want to live in a dorm anymore and do all this kind of stuff. So I, it was like it, I had a real ambivalence about it. I, I wanted to learn it, but I wasn't that keen on the, the degree process. And uh, it was around that time that I found out that MIT, you know, this kind of like, oh, the, the, this cool, just puts their courses online. Like you can just take them. Like they just have, oh, they set up a camera in the class and they just recorded the guy talking and they're like, here's all the problem sets and the exams the kids did. And like, this is what, this is what we were using. And I mean, it varies. Some of the classes are like, this is a PowerPoint slides with no lecture. So I don't want to make, like, I'm, I don't want to exaggerate here, but a lot of them are like that, especially the early classes. Like, you know, the, the physics class uh, by Walter Lewin. I mean, this is one of the, the best presented classes I've ever seen in my entire life. Like, this is way better than classes I paid money for to go to in school. And, uh, and so I, I, think, um, I think maybe I took, uh, it was like an algorithms class. Just sort of, I just watched it randomly. And I was like, man, this is really good. Like, like why, why would you need to go to school? You could just watch these things. And, you know, again, like, again, stepping back, background, this is, you know, early blogging days, uh, you know, peak Tim Ferriss. This is, you know, I, and I'm talking about some of my influences, like Josh Kaufman had his personal MBA, which was like a little different. He was more like, you know, making a book list of like, this is what you'd have to learn if you're doing an MBA program. 
and uh, Benny Lewis was doing his Fluent in Three Months projects. We can talk about that when it comes to language learning, but he was a huge influence for me, not just in terms of language learning methodology, but like he's out there doing it. He's like, I'm going to learn, you know, uh, Thai in three months. And then there's like, here's video from like week one or something. I was like, this is super cool. So I thought, well, I'm already a blogger. Um, I, at that point, my study skills kind of blog was doing okay. I was able to make enough money that I wasn't like, oh, I need a job right away. And I was thinking, you know what, this would be the perfect time to do it. I, I've got some time. I've just recently graduated. I'm not like deep in some other thing. I've got some money because I'm making a bit of money for the blog. So I'm not like a hard up for, for finances. Okay, if sweet. I'm going to so do some like big year-long project. That was your project. side part of income. That was your side income. Was yeah, yeah. Well, I had been that. writing my blog since since high school. So I was making some some money just from these like little study skills kind of courses. And obviously if you write, you're making courses about study skills, like this is a very relevant kind of thing of like, okay, I want to apply it on something. And taking the courses, like I'd always been a, a, a decent student and it was something that I thought, well, you know what, if I like pulled out all the stops, like really like, you know, went mm, 100% into the productivity and working hard and doing it, maybe I could do it in a compressed time frame. And this is also some of the like arrogance of being 24, but you're like, yeah, I'm going to try to do this in a year and I'm going to like declare it publicly that I'm going to do it before I start, which even now I'm not quite sure why I decided that that was like going to be what I did, but that's what I did. And, um, and so I did, I did do it. It was a lot, it was a lot of work and I got lucky in some places. Like, as I said, the, um, I've talked about here that, you know, I really, really worked hard like the first three or four months, but it was kind of like the classes were getting easier as I was getting more burned out. So I was able to like hit the deadline. It could have been the case that the classes were getting harder, in which case I just would have failed. But, um, so there was a little bit of luck there, a little bit of me being overly optimistic, but somehow pulling it off. But but I mean, it was a lot of studying. I, I was, you know, probably studying about, you know, eight to eight to ten hours a day, uh, maybe even up to, up to twelve hours in the beginning, and then more like more like eight hours uh, near to the end of the project. But it was it was full time. Like I was Monday to Friday, I was doing this every day, and it was exciting too because I mean, uh, first of all, I wasn't paying any tuition, so it wasn't like you. Didn't that's have to insane. Do that. That's yeah. insane that you did that. That's so like. <laughs> Well, I know the MIT challenge one is the least approachable of all the projects. Like when I talk to other people about it, they're like, well, I'm, I'm not going to do that or I can't do that. And I'm like, I know, I know you're not like, it was a kind of, like, even I can't do it right now. I've got two kids at home. There's no way I'm doing it. But I think like, if you want to just step back and extract the lesson from it, the idea that you can learn, you know, from the best school in the world, the kind of a, a quite job ready skill, which is programming computer science. This is not just like art history or something that's just for your edification. Like it, you can get jobs with this. The fact that you can learn these skills just free online is just incredible. And and I think it's something that is not taken advantage enough by most people. But anyways, that was that was the project there. How did you manage yourself through that process? Because I mean, 24 yeah. is a really different age. I think of myself <laughs> 24 to now at 30, yeah. it's like two different people. Like, how yeah. did you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think. So I think part of it was, in some ways, I think it was it was maybe easier to do it then than it would be now. And, and as I mentioned, you know, like not having any responsibilities. My business at the point was like I'd been used to running it on top of studying, so it hadn't. I hadn't like added all this extra complexity that maybe like I have a team now and this kind of thing, and so it's a lot harder to just like compress things down. Um, so I think in some ways it was easier. And I think also, you know, uh, 
sort of some background to it. Since I had been about 15, I'd been interested in entrepreneurship. And so this idea of like doing like kind of working really hard on a sort of self-directed project was something I'd already been doing for almost 10 years that like I had been, you know, I want to start a business. So like, okay, I'm going to be like, when I started writing my blog, I was like, okay, I'm going to write an essay. Like I, I think there was one period where also doing some freelance articles to make a little bit of money through college. It's like writing like 10 articles a week or something on top of the study. So this was something that I was already used to like managing my time, being productive, got to get stuff done. So I was already used to that. And I think, um, you know, again, I think when I talk about studying too, I think the thing that's harder to convey about this project was that, like, I actually really enjoyed it. Like, I enjoyed the classes. I thought they were really interesting. They were well taught. I liked the subject. Um, there were some that were like, okay, this is hard. Like, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm struggling here. But most of them were not... I'm so underprepared for this that it's like stressing me out. And so I think that is also important too to keep in mind. Like I, ha I had the necessary prerequisite background. I'd even done a few programming courses in college. So I don't want to say that I had zero computer science experience. Although um, the thing that's also misleading is that most people think computer science is just programming, but actually it's mostly math. So I hadn't done as much as it, it would be useful as you might think as to an outsider. But I came into it not totally unprepared. And so I think that also made it more enjoyable than super stressful. Like if I was just like, well, I don't even know algebra and I'm starting like MIT's calculus course is going to be like, nah, I can't do this. So I think it was, it was well-timed and well-chosen the particular project. And I enjoyed it. And it was something that, you know, I could just dive deep in and obsess over. And I think there's something, I don't know, I didn't get this when I was in my actual schooling, but there's something really exciting about working on a project that is, challenging that's interesting that's something that like you're personally motivated to pursue that's different from like well i guess i got to take this class to you know get my credits to graduate or something you know so i think that was a big part of it as well well wow. and what did you do when you finished like was it just a day and it was over or like <laughs> yeah, what, what, what? yeah pretty much pretty much. well it is a little anticlimactic because i mean there's no ceremony there's no, yeah like, you're I not think, at school you're just by yeah yourself, like, i think i got dinner right. with a friend and we had like I, I my my roommate at the time i was like all right let's let's you know just i can sell that's how i can celebrate but i think um uh, to me the 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 kind of like if there is some sort of like culmination of it was that I'd been posting about this project like as it was happening for a year and it wasn't getting tons of attention. It wasn't like, oh, I'm famous right, right off the bat. Like when I made the announcement, when I made the announcement, I got a lot of hate mail from MIT students. Uh, like they really didn't like that I was going to do this project. <laughs> and and I, it kind of surprised me. That's like the most hate mail I've ever gotten in my entire career. I tend not to ruffle too many thoughts. But I've got like angry emails from MIT students just kind of like, ah, how dare you? Who do you think you are? Kind of thing. So, but, um, but when I started doing it, that kind of quieted down. And, uh, and so I was, I've been posting about this for a year. I'd been like, oh, you know, I had these, I had this like little like vlog kind of thing on YouTube, which I made this stupid decision of putting it on a different YouTube channel than my main one. And you can't merge them after, but, but if you go there, you can find like my pimply face from like 24 being like, well, I did this class this week and here's my studying tips for the day and, and that kind of thing. And and so I, uh, I'd been doing this for a year, like, and, and no big thing, but I was like, you know what, I enjoy it. This is good. And it'll be good for me to like, you know, you, you reference this when I'm talking about like effective studying strategies and stuff in the future and blah, blah, blah. 
And then when I made the final video, I just said, I did it. Like I finished all the courses that I said I was going to do kind of anticlimactically. And that video uh, got like the front page of Reddit and it kind of blew up like that. Yeah. Kind of made me a little internet famous. And then I also, I wrote um, a guest post about the project on uh, Cal Newport. Uh, he has a blog, a good friend of mine. And I wrote about it. And that got picked up in uh, China and became like super popular. And I was getting like, you know, Chinese publishers contacting me like, because I wrote this ebook in college and they're like, we want to publish your book, <laughs> like this kind of thing. And I was like, oh, okay. So it was, it was a, it was a kind of a funny experience because I had really been doing this sort of like, well, you know, that was fun, but like, you know, whatever. And then all of a sudden you're, uh, you're getting comments from people and, and it was really interesting to see the discussion of it because, you know, there's the, there were the people being like, you know, this is great. And then there's other people being like, well, it's too bad that all that matters is the degree and that you're, you know, you're never going to get a real job. And then there's like an HR manager replying to that person being like, I'd hire him. And I remember even a guy from Microsoft uh, reached out to me and was like, are you looking for a job? And I was kind of like, no, not really, but thank you. But, you know, so <laughs> that's the best. Yeah. Oh my God. Like, did it give you a lot of confidence? Like when you finished yeah. it? I mean, right after I finished, there was a, I think, I think there's any time you set a goal for yourself that's challenging and then you achieve it, you just have this like you're just sort of mental model yourself gets updated. And so for me, like although I had been learning things and doing stuff, I'd never done anything this sort of explicit and large in scope. But after doing it, I was like, oh, yeah, you know, like you could you could do this for anything, like <laughs> anything you want to learn, you could just do this. So I think that's a, that's a belief that I have that I, I sometimes forget that most people have that like, oh, if you just wanted to like learn everything you wanted to learn. Like you could just do that, like in economics or any kind of academic subjects. It's like, yeah, you could just do that. There's, there's no, there's nothing stopping you. Like you have to invest the time, but there's no, um, there's no like, Oh, there's some secret barrier that prevents you from doing it. And, um, and yeah. And then that was kind of that confidence of, and, and also just like the positive feedback you get from other people about it was a, a major ingredient in like a year later we did that uh, year without English uh, project. So I think I definitely wouldn't have considered the year without English if I had not been riding high from finishing the MIT challenge, but um, they were both of that vein. Yeah. Amazing. And what with the, the year without English, like that was your yeah. roommate, right? Yeah, was that a yeah. conversation where he was thinking about doing a gap year and you were like, we should do this instead. And then book the tickets. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it really started as a let's travel together. And then the, I just kept kind of like raising the stakes. So I think, I, I, I think if I go back to the history of those conversations, he, he was interested in going to Korea. And so we had talked about going to Korea for maybe a month as like a, you know, Oh, that'll be fun as a trip. And then I remember we, there was a while we were talking about doing a road trip throughout the United States. So like, I'm just telling you like this, these things kind of come from weird directions. And then it was like, well, you know, if you're going to take a year off, he had, he had been working in an architecture firm. He'd saved up some money. He was going to go do his master's. And he thought I'd like to do this, you know, while I'm already quitting my job. And, um, and so we were thinking, well, maybe we'll go do like a little kind of world trip. And, I had uh, I had done a year ab abroad when I was in university. I, I lived in France for a year, and I had learned French, but it was like grinding and kind of difficult. And then, sort of right after the MIT challenge, I went and I had a little vacation for myself. I went and I lived in Paris for a month. And when I was there, I was like, I'm only going to speak in French. Now I'd already learned French, so I'd, I'm not saying that this was like starting from scratch. But it was kind of like when I was there, I was like, this is what I should have done. 
it from the beginning, right? I should have done this because it works really well. Like once you're like, oh, I'm here and I'm only going to speak in French, uh, the whole social world around you kind of adapts and changes. Whereas if you're like, well, I'm going to speak it whenever it's comfortable. No, no, no. You just form this like protective coat of English around yourself. And this sort of sociological phenomenon was like, well, what if you like just you didn't you weren't even that good and you just like went there and you're like, I'm only going to speak in this language. Would it work? And I was inspired by Benny Lewis, who kind of has these public fluent in three-month projects. But I've also seen, you know, even like when I was living in France, there were people who, whose English wasn't as good, who were coming from countries where like there's not a lot of people who speak their language. Like they're from Czechoslovakia or Czech or Republic or they're from, uh, you know, somewhere else uh, in Eastern Europe. And, they, you know, there's only like one or two other people from their country who are on exchange there. And their English wasn't great. And they maybe knew a little bit of French. So they're like, I'm just going to speak in French because what else am I going to do? And their French was so good at the end of the period because, you know, obviously, right, you're spending all your all your days speaking it nonstop. And so I had some inclination that this would work. But, you know, I didn't know. I didn't know that it was going to work. And so we thought, well, like, what if we make this as a kind of an experiment where uh, we try not to speak English um, to the to the greatest extent possible? And, uh, and just like to be clear for the, for the year, this was not something that we upheld perfectly, but in Spain, we were very close to being perfect about it. The Asian countries, there was a little bit more slipping, but generally the idea was that like, we should be speaking all the time. So, you know, if it's, if there's a slip or something, you have to like, so if it's just the two, if it was just the two of you, you were still committing to trying to speak. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That was, that was the central thing. That (laughs) was the central thing is that like, we're in our apartment being like, with Google Translate being like, boy, I do charme. You know, like, I'm going to go take a shower or something. Like, tengo hambre. You know, like, that was what we were doing. Um, so it wasn't just like, oh, when we go on the street and we meet strangers, we're going to speak in Spanish. It was like, no, no, no. We're going to, like, show up there and, like, be talking to each other with our dictionaries. And, and you, you can – we did audio recordings. Um, we kind of got lazy with it near toward the end. But, like, in Spain, we have audio recordings, like, they were almost daily, like, from the beginning. So you can go and you can listen to us. Like, this is what our actual conversations were like in the beginning. It's a little painful, but, um, but I mean, that was, that was the idea. And, and we, you know, I, I was very inspired by Benny Lewis, but I definitely wasn't being like, oh, this is going to be me fluent in these languages after three months. Because I was like, I don't know. This, might, this project might just bomb. Like, it might just get there. Like, this is impossible. Sorry, guys. It doesn't work. We can't do it. And so, so I really didn't know what was going to happen when, when we, we got there. But, um, but, I, but in Spain, it actually worked pretty well. Like, we were able to make friends and we were, you know, living our lives, going on dates. And, like, it, we were doing a level of involvement in the country that we weren't anticipating. So kind of like the MIT Challenge experience, just, like, having something to go, like, better than expected just gives you so much more confidence. We're like, oh, yeah, this works. Like, this is what you got to do. And so that, that we were riding high from that. I think that carried us even through like the difficult parts of China and Korea, which by the way are much harder. I imagine. <laughs> I imagine. Yeah. Like how did, what was the like curve like, you know, was the yeah. first two weeks just, you know, you're kind of like looking at each other like, what the hell are we doing? And then you it picked up. And it got yeah. Crazy. I mean, it's exhausting. Like the, the first, the first couple of weeks are hard. Um, and I think they're especially hard when you don't know, you don't know when the light at the end of the tunnel is coming. And so I think that's when I've, talk to people about this i think it's not even so much like like even you can go on like silent meditation retreats where you're not speaking at all for like two weeks and people can do that so in some ways you'd think well if i can only speak this other language and use google translate that has to be easier than that right 
Um, but I think what's hard about it is not just like the mental difficulty of like, okay, uh, what is this word? And how do you say this again? And blah, blah, blah. It's also just, I don't know whether this is ever going to get better. You know, I don't know whether we're going to get out of this. And so the beginning was like, you know, you're not talking as much. You're having conversations. You're trying to just like, and you're dealing with daily life too. Like I got to get a SIM card and like, you know, this kind of stuff. Where am I getting my groceries and this sort of thing. But I think we, uh, we, we did manage to get to this. Like we did do a little bit of practice with Spanish before. I think we did about 50 hours, mostly Pimsleur. So we, we weren't like zero when we were starting. So we were able to communicate a little bit. And, um, and then when we were going to, uh, you know, I think we were lucky as well. Um, Benny Lewis actually happened to be in Valencia, like right when we were going there as well, which is also kind of a weird coincidence. And uh, so he was there and he speaks Spanish with us. So that was helpful. And he introduced us to some friends that he had. And we managed to meet, uh, we went to this like random kind of Erasmus party early on. And Erasmus is, uh, if you're not aware of what it is, it's a European um, exchange program. So people from different European countries frequently go on like a year abroad, but it's to another country in Europe. So there were lots of people who were in kind of a similar boat. Like they don't know anyone, they're making friends. And so it was, it's a real easy socializing kind of like, okay, we've instantly got some friends who are like willing to humor our terrible Spanish. Um, and so that helped as well. And so, you know, after about a month, we were kind of like, oh, you know, like we can get by, like our Spanish isn't good, but it's not, it's not like strenuous anymore. And, uh, and, and then I think by the time we were like about two and a half months in, we had this kind of feeling of like, yeah, yeah, we're good. Like we're not, I, I, that sounds really overconfident because I'm sure if you listen to recordings, it's like, oh, you know, you were supposed to use the subjunctive here, or this kind of thing. But just from the personal fluency point of view, just the fact that like the words come automatically, you don't have to stress over it. That was a level that we reached relatively quickly. Whereas I would say most people who take classroom language learning you never get to that fluency level like you know a lot maybe but you're not fluent in everything so it's effortful even after two three years of spanish classes uh whereas if you're speaking all the time every day you just don't even think about it you just it just just like talking in english for the most part your vocabulary is more limited and you make more mistakes but it's like that so so that was that was our experience with with spain um and spanish and again that just kind of carried us over so when we were starting Portuguese, which we didn't do any practice for, which was definitely bumpy getting there, uh, we had this kind of well, we know it's going to get easier, and it did. And uh, same with like Chinese and Korean were a lot harder, and they had a lot more frustrations. But it was the same basic like, well, we know this works. And so even like at the end of China, where you you encounter a lot more daily frustrations because every single word is different. So you can't like just rely on like, you know, Coca-Cola's Coca-Cola uh, kind of, um, kind of uh, overlap in languages. Um, there was that basic confidence. Okay, like we've done it enough times now that we know that if you just stick to it, you, you get through it. What were the cultures like with accepting and helping you out and trying to get you like, was it different? Surprisingly good. I mean, that's the main worry people have is that people are going to be really hostile to this. And one of the first phrases that we would learn in every country is that, like, I have a project to only speak this language. <laughs> and the funny thing was is how much that changed people's opinions of you. Because when you're speaking Spanish badly, first of all, Spanish people, I don't know, my general impression is that they're always very, um, at least in Spain, were very willing to speak in Spanish to you no matter your level of ability. Like, some other countries I've traveled to, there's a little bit of snobbishness sometimes about, like, 
no, but my English is better than your thing. So like, what yeah, you like, you know? get on with it. I don't like, I don't like this, you know, but Spain, it was kind of like, it didn't matter how garbage my Spanish was. People were kind of like, oh yeah, we can speak in Spanish. <laughs> like, I don't, I'm not going to speak in English, even though I'm fluent in it. Um, and so we, uh, so that, that like some of it may have been country choice, but I found that, uh, when you told people what you were doing, they were almost universally supportive. I find that like when you visit a country, most people's impression is that the typical tourist does not take any time to learn their language, to learn their culture, to learn, you know what I mean? And so being very forthright of like, oh, this is what we're doing. People are like, yeah, that's what you're doing. That's what most tourists should do. <laughs> like, <laughs> like everyone here just speaks in English all the time. So they, they understand. And um, actually the only pushback that we got was occasionally from people who were not locals there so i remember having this party then i were really like spain we're really being strict about not speaking english i don't want to say i i was this strict everywhere else but there was this guy i think it was like from poland or so he was like trying to talk to me and he didn't speak spanish very well and i was like you know voy a hablar en español no voy a hablar en inglés and he was kind of like what are you doing like speaking english to me like he was getting mad at me because i was like just steadfastly refusing to talk to him so i found that a little bit funny but but i mean spanish people generally were you know, as soon as you explained what the project was, they were like, yeah, that's a good idea. Um, and uh, I mean, there was a similar, again, similar experience in China and Korea. Uh, Korea was a little bit trickier because I found that the young people in Korea had much better English ability. So there was a lot more situations where it's sort of like, well, this is clearly more difficult than it needs to be because I'm speaking in. Uh, Korean and so there were there were more breakdown moments. It was also the end of the trip, so we were also exhausted. And, and Ch China had the benefit of where we were in China, which was Kunming, China. There was no one who spoke English, so we didn't have to worry about that. Like we we couldn't speak in English to these people if we wanted to. Like there was just sort of like, oh my god, this is a crisis, but there's nothing else I can do because <laughs> there's, there's no way this person understands what I'm saying. So there was something enjoyable about that. It was just like, well, this is this is still the best option, even how bad my Chinese is. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, and as far as, because I've always been really curious, like yeah, I've yeah. only got a bit of Spanish in my head and English. Mm -hmm. When you have that many languages in your head, you essentially yeah. end up a year with five. It's there overlap. Do you get confused? Like how did oh, it yeah. start to compound? And you know, yeah, I think the I think interference. So this is the sort of psychological term for what you're talking about. Interference, which is where you have like kind of two competing memories. I think that's the biggest challenge of learning multiple languages. Um, if you could just learn them all in isolation and then somehow you just like flip a switch in your brain and okay, now I'm speaking Spanish, only Spanish words, or now I'm speaking this, only this words, um, it would be much easier to learn like 10 to 20 languages. You know, the hard part is that when you learn one, it's like competing with the other. And I really noticed that when we were in Spain. Cause so again, like we're in Spain right now. Um, a couple of years prior, I'd learned French and French to a decent level. Like I could have conversations in it. And I remember we were in uh, Barcelona near the end of the trip and we went to some kind of meetup thing and there were some French people and I was like, oh, I can speak to them in French. And it was like, I can't speak French anymore. Like I like I literally couldn't. It was like um, it, it was like this mental block, like it, you because you, you're suppressing so hard saying the Spanish words. And if you practice both of them alternating, that does get easier. So I don't want to say this is like a permanent issue, but it definitely compounds the difficulty because when you learn a new language, you tend to have to do practice of the old languages to kind of keep them separate, so to speak. 
Um, so there was, a, there was work after the trip, I think, of doing that. Um, it, ironically, it tends to be worst for the languages that you get the most benefit from. So when you're learning Spanish after French, you get a lot of benefit because there's similarities in grammar and vocabulary. Portuguese, you get a huge benefit because it's very similar to Spanish. But then you have to keep keeping them separate is very hard. Whereas uh, Chinese, which was very difficult because you're building it up from scratch, basically, I never confuse it with other languages. So like I, if I'm speaking Chinese, I know I'll have no interference from like Macedonian or Spanish. There's never a chance that a Spanish word is going to pop out when I'm speaking Chinese. Um, sometimes there's Korean. I get a little bit of interference from Chinese, but my Chinese is a lot better than my Korean. But, but this is like kind of a trade-off, right? Like if you know Spanish and you learn Italian, you're going to learn Italian much faster than if you didn't know any but then you're going to have a harder time speaking Spanish. So you have to like kind of pay that price after to like get them untangled. Um, so yeah, that's definitely, definitely a challenge I think of, of learning multiple languages. But, but my basic feeling is that I think if you have the viewpoint of languages that like, well, it's something you're going to have to study for like 10 years in school to be able to do it at all. Um, then it, then it makes sense to be worried about that. But I think my attitude now is more like, well, if you're going to go somewhere for more than two weeks, like why not learn a bit of the language? Like it's, it's, you know, I, like I, it sounds really arrogant when I say it, but it, like, it's not that hard to get to that like basic level. So my, my uh, wife and I, uh, our last like major trip before we had kids, we went to, uh, to Tokyo for like 10 days. So I was like, well, why, why not do like 30 days of pimps And I definitely could not speak Japanese, but like it was enough that when we went to Mount Fuji and we were staying in one of those like traditional ryokan hotels and I had to like ask them whether we could get breakfast. And then I found out we couldn't. The guy didn't speak English. For some reason, the hotel reception guy couldn't speak English. And, and I was able to communicate with him and like, you know, ask him where things are and stuff. And uh, like, that's a level that is definitely not enough to make friends. So I don't want to like equate it to what we were doing. But if you're going to be somewhere for 10 days, it can be really helpful. And so I think that's something that like I've adopted as kind of a philosophy that like, well, if I'm going to go to a place, you might as well learn at least a little bit. Like, why not? It's, and I think some people are very reluctant to do that just because they've had that classroom experience where it's like, oh, no, but if I start doing this, it's going to be 10 years, you know? Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, we were in Nicaragua for yeah. nine months, and um, my girlfriend, Bianca, speaks Spanish. She grew up, like, his parents mm -hmm. are Spanish, uh, Colombian, and French, a little bit of Italian. And I was able to get away with a lot when we were together in Nicaragua and then she went back to do her CPA exams back to Vancouver and I was alone. Mm -hmm. I was by myself for three months. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's so crazy how like when you go, it's like when you mentioned getting the SIM card, it's like you go to get the SIM card and nobody speaks English and you just yeah. have to learn. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it was really Yeah, you got the Google Translate. You're like, uh, quiero una tarjeta SIM. Like, you know, you're, you're doing that, right? So I think, uh, I think it's, Something that can be kind of scary. I think whenever I've talked about this project with people, um, so the funny thing is, is like when I talk about these projects with people and people are like, well, I'm, I'm never going to do that MIT challenge. And I'm kind of like, well, you know, that's kind of fair. It was like, it was, it was sort of purposefully an extreme project, but you maybe could take a class or two online. But the, the language learning one, like we left, because I also, I did this with my friend who I really just, he was just happened to be my roommate. This is not like some guy I picked because he's like, you know, oh yeah, and I've got, you know, polymath, you know, Joe Schmo with me, who's, <laughs> you know, IQ 100. This is a guy I just lived with. And I was like, you want to do this too? And he's like, yeah, sure. And, and I mean, he didn't even really study that hard. I, I don't want to like shit on him on this podcast, but I mean, we were in Spain and he's like, I'm not studying. I don't want to study. And I remember sitting him down after like about a month in and I was like, dude, you got to learn to conjugate things. Like, this is not <laughs> like, we've been here for a month. 
is not cool that you're just saying like what a lot you know well he was saying he was saying uh (laughs) he was saying what was he saying when we were there like um uh like he would just use like the infinitive version and just like i'm just gonna say like yo sir like i'm not gonna i'm not gonna say the thing um properly and people understood him but it was like okay no no this is like it's okay to not speak <laughs> but you've been here for a month now this isn't cool anymore so i remember we had like a over dinner i'm like i'm gonna teach you this and you're gonna start saying it properly <laughs> um, so like he i don't want to say he was lazy he definitely wasn't but he was more interested in the travel experience he was really interested in photography if you watch your videos he's doing these like time lapses and stuff that was what he wanted to do the spanish thing was kind of inside so the fact that he learned it the fact that he did this and was successful with it i think is also saying something about the technique and it, about it being somewhat more approachable and so i've said this to people like who are like i'm gonna go live somewhere else for a period of time and i want to learn the language so admittedly this is not everyone who's learning a language so this is not advice that i apply you know to every single person but it's like i'm gonna go live in you know buenos aires for uh, nine months. And I'm like, great, you should do this. And universally, the response I get is like, nah, I don't think I'm going to do that. <laughs> and it's, I, I, I think it's hard for me to convey to those people that not only can you do it, but you'd be successful with it. And you'd thank yourself later for doing it because three months in, when you're actually pretty good at Spanish and you can just sort of relax a little bit, you don't have to worry about like, oh, I'm only going to speak in Spanish. You have this ability that like helps you in your daily life for the rest of the year. And so I, I feel really badly for people who like I would meet people who had lived in like particularly Asian countries for like two decades and they're like, you know, their Chinese is limited to like Nihama. And it's like, you know, I know Chinese is hard. I know this is difficult. So I'm not trying to like, you know, make light of it or, or do this kind of thing. But but if you're going to live there your whole life and you don't speak it, you're impoverishing yourself because most people don't speak English. And so you're just forever kind of at the mercy of like the handful of, you know, um, educated people who speak English or other expats. And I think it leads, leads to an impoverished experience being in that country because – uh, you know, I can't, I can't count on them my hand the number of experiences I had where it's like, well, I couldn't have done this if, if I was just in the English speaking bubble. But it's not, it's not apparent that those are there when you're, when you're doing this. So again, I don't want to be overly critical if you're, if you're struggling under this. This isn't me trying to like scold you. It's more just that I think more people could and would benefit from taking this approach to, um, to learning a language if they're going to stay in a place. For long enough to make it worth it. I know mean, two weeks is a little bit aggressive, but if you're going to be there for like three months, even I would say that, uh, you know, if, if you're not like overly stressed with other things involved in traveling, I think it can be beneficial. Yeah. Something that really surprised me that I didn't expect that I've absolutely loved is music. It's mm-hmm. like exploring a whole, yeah. you know, it's like as I explore more music and English and English as I was growing up, I was like, I felt like finding new music was like a treasure, finding mm-hmm. a new song that you liked. Yeah. But then when you enter a whole new language, you get to explore this treasure trove of stuff that you've never even explored. You know, it was a really amazing benefit that I didn't didn't expect. Oh, definitely. Like, I mean, that was was one of the things. Like, we we really emphasize this no English rule, but... Um, consuming media in other countries is uh, was something that we really enjoyed too. So like I have, I still have like, you know, albums that are saved on my phone that are you know in Spanish or uh, Portuguese or, um, or or Mandarin or this kind of thing, and it, it can be it is I think it's hard to learn from those resources, 
like even if you listen to English songs, like I'm a native English speaker and you listen to like the English songs that are on the radio right now and you're like, ask me to write down the lyrics and I cannot. So if you appreciate that difficulty in your native language, you can only imagine how difficult it is um, with another language. Although like Spotify now has the lyrics. I never, I haven't done that yet, but that was always the thing. I was like, what is this person saying in Spanish? Yeah. You could actually just look it up and, and translate. And you're like, oh, okay. All yeah. right. It sounded especially nice, with the but, slang, yeah. especially with the slang and like, oh just... yeah. Yeah, well, any kind of like, you know, hip hop adjacent kind of field is going to be like, and that's the thing too. I mean, uh, you know, when you're doing this kind of approach, you tend to learn words and vocabulary that come up in your immediate experience. So I cannot say that my, like my Spanish has perfect breadth. And I've been in situations where I will be talking to uh, like Mexicans, for instance, and the Spanish is quite different from, and, and so like, you know, like watching a Mexican movie is like, oh, it's impossible. I can't understand anything anyone's saying. <laughs> and um, it's, you know, the accent's different, the vocabulary is different, again, slang is different, this kind of thing. Um, and so, you know, I do think, I do think one kind of uh, side effect of this process is that you, you learn the language, but you learn it in a highly individualized way. So there's certain words and phrases you know through daily experience, but then there's other things that are like part of the canon of like, if you know Spanish, you should know this that you don't know, which is very different from taking a class where someone has tried to figure out a generic Spanish that covers the most possible cases and teach it to you. Um, you know, this is going to be a lot more idiosyncratic. And so there's, it ends up being embarrassing when there's things that like you really feel like you should know and you don't, but it's also can be kind of nice that you are able to perform at a level with maybe a more limited vocabulary than uh, you would be able to in other situations. Yeah. I found what was really interesting. I heard you talk about it on a different yeah. podcast was about Duolingo mm, and yeah, yeah. how much time I've spent on goddamn Duolingo. <laughs> <laughs> and then, oh, yeah. you know, I'm like my mother-in-law, you know, mm -hmm. she speaks, she's broken English. Um, so she speaks Spanish really mm -hmm. fast, Colombian. Yeah. And so, and then I'm like, I don't understand anything that you're saying. And I just spent yeah. like 50 hours of my life on this app, pressing buttons, reading yeah. back, doing the yeah. myriad of different activities that they get you to do, but retaining next to nothing. Same way. Yeah. So Duolingo, uh, first of all, I should say that like, cause I, I wrote about Duolingo in the book. So I have this chapter on directness and my critique of Duolingo at the time was very much like, this isn't what you're doing when you're speaking a language. Like this was like, I remember I did one, I did it for Italian. Uh, I, w I went on uh, my honeymoon. Uh, I went to Italy for three weeks and I thought I should, I should do it. And I should try Duolingo. Duolingo wasn't really available when we were doing the, the year without English. It never factored in. Like it wasn't even like we tried it and rejected it. Um, I remember doing uh, Duolingo Spanish after Spain and they do this kind of like assessment test. And I think I was at the end of the test. It was like, oh, you already know it. So I was like, oh, okay. Um, but, uh, but I did it for Italian because I thought, well, I, I should try this out. And I was very disappointed with it. Um, and uh, so I'm saying this from my limited experience with Duolingo. Um, I also want to stress that they're always changing the app too. So yeah, I know these are critiques circa, you know, 2016, 2015 when I was writing the book. Um, you know, it could also be that like, well, they've improved it since then. And I'm now the, you know, slandering them on, on well, this podcast. Well, the fact that but, it changes so much yeah. is so confusing. Like for me, I'm like <laughs> going back to the app and I'm like, everything's yeah. different. And now it's a new way of like, and you like, well, I've heard I've heard they've been integrating with ChatGPT to do this kind of like you can actually converse with it, and I don't know whether that works. 
I haven't tried the feature myself, but I mean, if it does, then I might like hold my critiques of them now. But here, here's my problem. Here was my problem with Duolingo. And, and I sympathize with the developers of Duolingo. So I'm not just trying to like say, oh, they're just ignorant and I'm, you know, I know everything about language learning. I'm sure they have people who know about language learning on their staff. I'm sure they have linguists who know more than I do who are gonna be like tis tisking me right now. But here's the thing. Duolingo has two problems, I think, that make it not a great app for language learning. The first, is that a lot of the exercises they get you to do are kind of language adjacent, but they're not really what you're doing when you're speaking. So for instance, like it'll be, here's a sentence, you know, put it in English, and then there's like little, you drag around the words to get the word order. And maybe that practices the word order, and maybe it makes you a little bit more familiar with the words, which is not like a totally negative thing. But that's not what you have to do when you're making a sentence. When you're making a sentence, you have to construct it. So you have some meaning that you want to express. Uh, in the beginning, you probably also automatically turn that meaning into the English sentence. So I don't want to say you're always translating when you're speaking another language, but at least in the beginning, you often are because the English meaning turns into a sentence instantly in your thoughts. And you're trying to figure out how to express it. And so you have to recall what the words are. So you have to recall like the translation of the words. You have to do whatever grammar is required to like assemble them in the right way. And then you need to pronounce them. You actually have to use your lips and hair to make the sounds. And so if the only thing you're doing in this particular exercise is just organizing the words, you're only doing like one of like eight of those things. And so if you need to do all eight to be fluid and you only have one of them and then you go there and you're speaking, it's like, it doesn't help you. Right. It's like, it's like if you drive a car, but you only know how to, you know, change gears and like changing gears is an important part of driving a car. I don't want to say you don't want to practice that either, but you're not gonna be able to drive a car if you don't know about the gas pedal and the steering wheel and the blinkers and all the other things that are involved in driving a car. So my feeling is that Duolingo tends to underprepare people. Now, why does it do that? I think that it does that for two reasons. One is that at least in the version of Duolingo that I was testing, which again is quickly becoming dated. So if, if someone wants to reply in the comments that Duolingo doesn't work that way anymore, then I, I rescind all my criticisms. Um, <clears throat> the, the way it was working is that, well, let's say you're translating a sentence. Here's the problem. There's lots of different ways you could translate a sentence. And how do you have the thing tell you whether you got it right or not? It's hard because if I write it in a slightly different order and it just tells me, nope, that wasn't the way I was thinking, that's going to be overly punitive, right? On the other hand, if it doesn't catch that I made an important fundamental mistake, that's also not good because then I'm going to be learning it wrong. So I think the way that they solve that is they restricted your degrees of freedom in putting input in the app so that either you get it completely right or completely wrong. Like there's no like, well, that was another way of saying that kind of thing, right? So it does do I that think that's, to an extent I, now. Yeah. It does do that, but definitely to it's an better. extent. It's better. Well, okay. If it's better, then again, as I said, I, I have to I have to like I have to revisit every once in a while because I think the app changes so much. So that's the first thing. The second thing I think is that they're trying to retain users. So they understand that the people who are learning languages have, I would say, like they mostly want it to be a game and only slightly want it to teach them a language. Like most people who are learning a language are like, I want something fun to do on my phone. They're not like I actually have to seriously prepare for this language that's coming up. And so this is my critique of maybe the Duolingo audience rather than the Duolingo creators. But they understand that if they make the app too hard or if they ask people to do things that are more mentally effortful or require you to like do things like, you know, okay, I actually have to take 10 minutes out of my day to do this rather than just like, you know, I'm sitting on the bus or, or on the toilet or something playing around for two minutes. Um, they're not going to do it. They're gonna, they, I'm gonna lower user retention. 
And so I think that tends, those two constraints make it hard to have a, a good language learning app. And so I think that Duolingo is probably not useless. I think I was a little too harsh with it, with the book. I think it's probably not useless, probably helps with some things. But I think it only works if you go in with the assumption that this is definitely not going to teach me everything I need to be fluent. And when I start going in speaking situations, it's going to feel like I learned nothing. You probably did learn some things, but you're like, again, if you imagine the skill set being 10 components, if you've learned three and you need to do the other seven, it doesn't feel like you've learned three. It feels like you've learned zero. So that would be my critique. The other critique I would say is that a lot of people who use Duolingo, because it's gamified, because it's easy to use, because it's fun, it's very easy to use it for like a year or two. And then after a year or two of any study of a language, with even I think you're spending like, you know, two, three hours a week, you should be able to have a simple conversation. I'm sorry. If, if whatever you're using does not let you have a simple conversation, it's not a good technique. And so I, like I recently went to, um, there's a Chinese language meetup here, and I hadn't gone in a couple of years, and I went there, and I was talking to a guy who's very earnestly trying to learn Mandarin, and Mandarin's very hard, don't get me wrong. There's lots of people who study it for a long time and, and have difficulty speaking it. But this guy was like not able to understand or put together, like I would say, like the unit one kind of sentences. Like I, like I, I asked him, uh, like, why are you learning Mandarin, which is like – and I said it very slowly and he, he could under, he, hear the words, but it was like his brain couldn't assemble the syntax to figure out what the meaning of that sentence was. And again, I'm not trying to be critical. I, 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 this guy was really earnestly trying to learn it, but he wasn't able to do that. And I asked him like, oh, how long have you been learning? He said, oh, two years with Duolingo. Well, here's the thing. If you spent two years and you're not able to do that one-on-one task, that's very demotivating in terms of actual use. It gives you the impression that language learning, well, I must just have to spend 80 years learning this, rather than, well, maybe if you had used a different approach to learning, you'd be getting better results. So what I typically recommend instead is Pimsleur. I really like uh, Pimsleur for the very early stages of learning a language. Of course, I think Actual use conversations are good. Um, tutoring is good. Textbooks are good. So these are things that are later on. But if we're talking about like, I don't know anything, what should I use? I usually recommend doing a month of Pimsleur because what Pimsleur gets you to do is it forces you to retrieve whole phrases. It actually gets you to like, later on, it gets you to like sub in phrases. So you learn kind of the sentence structure a little bit, like a little bit of conjugation. And most importantly, the structure is this kind of pattern of like, now say, you know, uh, like I still remember the ones from Spanish. It's like, now say, where is the Bolivar restaurant? And it's like, donde esta el restaurante Bolivar? And like, you can remember these phrases. Like I, this was 10 years ago. And I still remember that stupid Bolivar restaurant phrase because you, it generally gets in your memory so deep that you can't forget it. And now how useful is knowing where the Restaurante Bolivar is? Probably not that useful. But it does get you to learn that sentence phrase pattern of donde esta whatever. And so if donde esta whatever is in your kind of deeply learned procedural memory, then when you go somewhere and you have to ask like donde esta el estacion del metro, you can say that because all you need is to slot in the vocabulary. And so Pimsleur, I think, is more useful for prep. It does require half an hour of focused time. Uh, you can do a commute and this kind of thing, but it's harder than Duolingo. So my impression is that people enjoy Pimsleur less than Duolingo, but it's one month, and after you can actually say some things, which I, I can't usually say about Duolingo. So that's my critique of Duolingo. If you're just wanting a game to play and you want it to be language-themed, then go right ahead. I don't want to be like too much poo-pooing people's parade. But if you were thinking, okay, well, I do actually really want to learn X, uh, I would recommend doing doing Pimsleur first. Um, and then I usually also recommend doing flashcards over Duolingo because at least flashcards, 
you know, again, it is also just a slice of the language ability, but memorizing what words are is a super, super useful skill to have. Like if you just have like a thousand, two thousand words just memorized, um, it assists so much. It's not everything, but it assists so much in learning a new language because you can just like, oh, that's what that word is and you can just say it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, would, would you mind talking about the expanding a bit on the importance of like winning, you know, and having quick wins mm, in, yeah, the, yeah. in the journey of commitment? Because it is a big commitment. Yeah. And it's hard. Like yeah. I found it one of the most hardest things I've done. The language learning. Yeah. Well, I think, I say, so I think uh, our entire motivation, like what, what motivates us, what gets you to do ambitious things is, is this kind of selective reinforcement cycle. And I think people, motivation is actually really simple. It's hard because sometimes the situation is not amenable to our motivation, but like people make a big deal about a lot of, you know, oh, you know, I'm going to psych myself. But basically motivation is basically you've been reinforced for doing certain things and it makes you more likely to do them in the future. So I think the behaviorists were right about this, that motivation can be explained simply by reinforcement. And so when you're approaching, let's say, a, a subject you're studying and you have frustration, frustration, fr those are like punishments. Those are like the rat in the cage getting zapped. And then eventually they stop pressing the lever. And so I think for a lot of people, they give up on learning because you have frustration, 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 and then you stop doing it. Whereas if you have small success, small success, small success, small success, you get more motivated. It becomes more fun to do the thing that you're doing. And so a big part of our, like architecting a successful learning project is trying to design it in a way that, not that you're avoiding difficulty, don't get me wrong. I, I, don't, I think if you're just having fake wins where you're not actually doing the thing that you're doing, it's not helpful either. But kind of navigating it of like, how can I steer this ship so that I'm getting wins early on so that I'm building my motivation? So this is one reason I, I actually like starting with conversations with language learning. I know there's a big, uh, there's a big academic debate over how important conversations are. I know um, there's a lot of researchers who are very input focused and there's a whole community of language learners that really like uh, reading and listening. And I think that can work too. So I don't want to be totally dismissive of that approach. But one nice thing about conversations is that the other person you're talking to knows that you're not very good. And they automatically adjust their level of language. So if you need language at level one in order to communicate, the other person will try to bring it down. Now, some people aren't very successful at that and they can only bring it down to four and then you still fail to talk to them. But you know, I've had conversations with people where I don't speak their language at all. So people are good at adjusting they're like, you know, you're grunting and pointing, like people can get to that. Um, and that's an important part of, of learning any new skill is that the tasks are at your difficulty level. And so language learning conversations tend to do this, whereas books or movies do not. So if you're watching a movie and it's a level, level eight and you're level six, well, you can only understand it with subtitles, right? You don't understand what's going on. And, and there's ways you can work around it. You can watch it a couple times. You can watch it with subtitles and then without. And, but that also tends to be kind of annoying and this kind of thing. Normally, we don't watch the same movie like three times in a row. So there are ways around it. Um, and if you're going to do reading or listening, it's really important to have like graded materials. So, and often that means you have to do graded materials for a while because native level media tends to be uh, quite hard. Like it is something that you acquire, I would say, later than conversational ability if you're doing it that way. And so, uh, so that's what I would recommend is that um, if you do a conversational approach, it's a little bit easier. So going to like italki. Uh, uh, so uh, italki.com, that's the one that I usually use, and you can book tutors. Um, I, they used to have conversation partners. I think they maybe discontinued that feature, but there's other apps that can uh, set you up with partners. So if you don't want to pay for a tutor, you just like 50-50 English in whatever language they want to learn. And uh, you can do the little mini no English for like that half hour. And it is strenuous. I don't want to say that it's, but there's something really rewarding about like being able to even just 
you know, say simple things like, you know, I like to eat pasta. Like, I mean, it doesn't have to be, you know, deep philosophical conversations. And so I think that gives you that reward. I think there's something really, there's something really satisfying about being in another country, interacting with someone where you can't speak English or they don't speak English and like successfully accomplishing a communicative goal. Uh, I mean, you just don't get that when you spend years, you know, in a textbook or doing flashcards. I think the intrinsic interest has to be really high to succeed with that approach. Whereas, you know, as I said, when I was in Tokyo and I was like trying to figure out whether we could order breakfast, even though we didn't order it online in Japanese, it was difficult. But when I found out that no, we could not, I was satisfied that that, <laughs> that communication interaction had, had been achieved. Whereas before, you know, if, it, if I hadn't done anything before I got there, it would have been like, well, you know, Okay, whatever. So I think getting those kind of rewards is very important. So I don't want to say shy away from difficulty, uh, but I want to say, you know, navigating the difficulty is important because you want to pick things where it's sort of like, okay, I can be successful at this. I can be successful at this. And that builds your motivation and your confidence. Yeah, and it sounds like you're also talking about free recall. Is that right? I've heard mm -hmm. you talk about that. And the importance yeah. of struggling is actually like how our perception could you expand on how right. the perception of how we're learning things and like sometimes the people d that do rote, they think they've learned something better versus the people that have, you know, done free recall. They actually think they've done worse, but they're actually have a better so, result. So I think the, the research you're referring to um, was comparing review and recall. So uh, re the retrieval, uh, retrieval practice or what um, psychologists also call the testing effect is a well-documented memory phenomenon. And this is basically the idea that if you give someone to test for knowledge, so you're not giving them more information, you just ask them to recall what they've already seen, their memory gets strengthened more than if you show it to them again. And there are some exceptions to this, so we could get into that as well. Um, there's some complexities in the literature. But for something like uh, language learning, where you're learning vocabulary, I think it's pretty safe to say that this is true. Where, you know, if I were to teach you um, the word for car is uh, el coche, and I was just to say it's el coche, el coche, like 10 times to you, versus I said once it's el coche, and then I said, okay, what is car again? And you say el coche, you're going to remember it better in the second condition. And so this is one benefit of having conversations is because the speed of conversations, you generally have to do this, you're going to be practicing more recall because uh, not only... So, so another, another like a uh, little confusion, uh, when you're reading in another language, you're also doing recall because you're trying to recall what the English word is from what you're seeing. And when you're speaking, you're doing the opposite. So I don't want to, I don't want to make this about reading versus speaking because they're both involving retrieval practice. Um, but when you're speaking, because it's happening quickly, uh, it's hard to just like Google translate everything and just read it. Right. So I don't want to say you do have to read it the first time. Like you do have to, like you have to get it from somewhere. But if you're going to continue to practice, you do it this way. So there was this really interesting study that I talk about in the book where I have a chapter on retrieval practice where the authors of the study split people into different groups. And one group, they got to do repeated reviews. So you have some text that you're reading and they you use your available time. You read it multiple times. The other people, they read it once closed it and they did what's called free recall. So free recall is a subset of retrieval practice where it's basically like blank paper, write down everything you remember. As opposed to like cued recall where it's like, what is car in Spanish? And it's like, oh, do you remember what I said before? Um, uh, th so this free recall activity, uh, they, they just sort of blank page. And there's no feedback. There's no like, oh, you forgot this or you remembered this. It's literally just retrieval. And this is an important, like feedback's valuable for learning, but this is important for just 
the kind of scientific or the theoretical value of, of this um, technique is that you do this free recall and, it, and, and you ask people after they've done both of these, how well do you think you'll do on a test? And the repeated review people are very confident. They're like, I know this because I've read it like eight times. The retrieval practice people, in contrast, rate themselves very poorly. They're like, man, I could barely remember anything. I'm not going to do well on the test. But when he actually tests them, it's the opposite. The people who did free recall recall more. And, and this, uh, the theory of this uh, proposed by uh, psychologist uh, Robert Bjork is that when you read something over and over again, it gets increasingly fluent. And so we don't actually have access to like memory stores where we can see like, oh, this is like you know, a battery signal. Like this memory is at 50% strength. We don't know that. All we have is how easy it feels for us when we're thinking about it. And if you read something over and over again, it becomes fluent really quickly because it's very easy to read things. Whereas if you're struggling to recall something, it doesn't become fluent, but the effort itself uh, helps form these stronger memories. So I don't want to make uh, too broad a statement about like, well, just the more difficult something is, the better it is for learning. Because as we talked about, matching the difficulty level is important. If you're just watching a movie where you don't understand anything, you're not actually going to learn very much uh, Spanish. Um, you know, it, it, it'll be hard and it will not be very helpful for you. But having a conversation where you actually have to recall what you're trying to say and you have to actually... Um, use the little mental mechanisms to like produce the grammar rather than just reading it or just looking at it um, is very helpful. And so particularly if you're a memory intensive subject like, uh, like language learning, retrieval practice is essential. And again, that's also one of my critiques of Duolingo is that when you're doing drag and drop, you don't have to retrieve any of the words, right? Whereas if you have flashcards where it's like on one, it's like car, and then I have to say el coche on the back, I actually had to do retrieval practice. And so that is more effective than like, drag El Coche to car on the app. They're, they're, they're subtly different, but the second one is not going to be as effective um, because all you have to do is recognize that those two uh, match rather than produce El Coche and like, you know, all the sounds and everything in your head and assemble that together. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really curious, like, as you know, you stated before, less responsibilities, you're able to commit to, yeah. you know, just going off to mm -hmm. you know, do a year trip and stuff like that. Yeah. How do you... How do you structure your learning time now when you have more responsibilities, family, business, all that sort of stuff? It's harder. It's harder. I got to be honest. Like, I'll be candid about that because, you know, I'm, I'm talking to you right now and, like, we're having this podcast. Uh, you're um, in a different time zone. And so uh, we started at, like, 8.30 a.m. And so I'm waking up early. But, like, I also, you know, in the middle of the night, uh, my daughter, she's seven months old. She was up between two and three. And, and you know, there are very frequent days where it's, like, you wake up at six and it's like 9 p.m. is like the first moment you have to do something that's like not like immediately dealing with the situation. So if you're like nine and then you got to go to bed at 10 because you're going to wake up twice in the night, that's not like that's definitely not 10 hours a day. But I do think you can still learn things. And so I don't want to create the kind of like, well, anyone could do the MIT challenge. Like, like one question that always drove me bananas is that I get emails from people be like, do you think I could do the MIT challenge if I'm also working a full time job? And I'm kind of like. Well, I don't know. I couldn't. I don't know if you could. That's great. But like, it was really hard for me. Like, I don't know what you want me to say. Right. Um, but that doesn't mean you can't learn anything. And so, like, as I said, uh, you, when you asked me at the very beginning of the, the show, uh, what I'm learning right now, so I'm doing some watercolor painting. So what I do is I have like my area set up so that it like, okay, it's 9 PM. I've maybe like sat on my phone just to like decompress for like 10 minutes. And then it's like, okay, I'll go there and I'll work on it for a little bit. And then, oh, the baby's up. Okay. I just stop. I put it there. So having the sort of space open for doing something like that 
it's not, it's not, I'm not going to lie. It's not the same as being able to do it for 10 hours a day. Like if you're a fine art student and you're like 12 hours a day doing artistic projects, you, your skills will mature faster. That's just obvious. But the same thing with language learning, you know, if you only have, um, if you only have 20 minutes, uh, maybe you can't even like schedule practices for conversations. Like there's probably, like, as I said, Duolingo's half an hour. You don't have to do it all in one burst. You could do five minutes, five minutes, five minutes. Whenever you get interrupted, just pause it and start again. Like it is possible to do it. Um, so I don't, I don't want to be too hard on people who are in like the extreme exhaustion, time deprivation state. Cause I know when you're in that state, someone telling you, well, you really should be learning languages and really should be doing this is not what you want to hear. But I do think the problem is more motivational than time. It's more, this task isn't pleasant enough for me, or I'm not, I don't get enough rewards from it. Like going back to this motivational thing, like I don't find it enjoyable enough to keep doing it. And so often what you need to do when you're in a situation like mine, where you have a lot less time, but you still abstractly want to learn things, but often concretely you find it difficult is you need to figure out how do I restructure the task so that it's more motivating. So like, as I said, a big thing for me, what was holding me back from, you know, working on this art is I didn't have a dedicated space for it and I couldn't just set it up and go. So every time I wanted to start, I had to pull everything out and oh, what am I doing and like get everything ready and like, oh, get this ready and this ready and this ready. And so if you have to do 10 minutes of setup and you only have 15 minutes, you're not going to do it very often, right? And so I think that's true of a lot of things is that like reduce the friction um, make it at your difficulty level, make it more enjoyable. I do think you want to care about the efficacy, but if you were just like, I don't know if I want to learn Chinese, then Duolingo is probably not bad, but I wouldn't want to be like the guy who was like, actually, I really want to learn Chinese. I've been doing it for two years and I don't know what Weishima means. Like, you know, it, it's like, oh, okay. <clears throat> Maybe you want to shift up at that point. But I do think that, um, Understanding the motivational context is really important because, uh, you know, the same people who say, oh, I have no time to learn, somehow watch a lot of Netflix or, you know, they're active on Instagram. And, and this isn't to tisk tisk them, it's just to state a fact that when something is easy and, uh, and it's like available and we don't have to do any setup costs, we end up doing a lot more of it. So if you can take that mindset or those ideas and apply it to your learning, you do end up actually reading more books when you have it on your phone all the time than, you know, when you have your Instagram app right there. Yeah, it's wild, isn't it? That's been one of the most powerful things that I've done is just setting up my environment properly mm -hmm. and just be like, phone doesn't belong in the bedroom, Kindle <laughs> is in the bedroom, you know? Yeah. You just, it's the, sa it's the yeah. exact same motion is like, and it's just, you've replaced one with reading a book versus, you know, who's not, who knows what when you're in bed on your phone. Um, so I'm really curious, would you mind expanding, or it sounds like you touched a little yeah. bit on the idea of mental model, models and preparing before we're learning, the importance of prepping right. for our learning journey versus mm -hmm. career yeah. straight in. Well, so again, this part of the context of this as well is this ultra learning. So in the book, which is titled Ultra Learning, I'm talking about these kind of intensive learning efforts. So just to switch gears from when we were talking about the like, how do you spend five minutes a day doing Pimsleur? If we're talking about like, oh, I I want to learn something that I know is gonna be hard, I am committed for it. So background context. Part of the difficulty with learning is that there's a real catch-22, that uh, the knowledge you need to guide your learning process, you also don't have when you start. So it's not just that learning Chinese is difficult because there's a lot of Chinese knowledge that I don't have. It's also that I don't have much knowledge about how is Chinese structured? Like, what's the best way to learn it? I don't have that. And 
that means that if you're a self-directed learner, so if you're doing what I'm advocating, which is like, you know, taking on your own projects, um, you're really at the mercy of the materials you find, right? So if you, like, for instance, like I'm making this kind of esoteric point about Duolingo, but like the average person is totally oblivious to this, right? Like it's a very subtle distinction about whether you're doing retrieval flashcard for a word or whether you're drag and dropping. Like this, this is a this is not something that you're going to notice when you're doing it. That like, oh, this is why it doesn't work as well because I'm not I'm not doing this key element of this activity. It's 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 a totally trans um, opaque to you. And that's the same with most classes. Like if you take a class that it just turns out it's badly taught, like they're not telling you what you need to know, you're not going to know. You're just going to be like, ah, I must not be very good at this, right? And so this can lead to a lot of frustrations and difficulties, uh, and especially for skills where there's lots of materials, there's lots of different things you can use. You can be overwhelmed. Like, like language learning is one of those things where, you know, as I said, like I've done it enough times that like I prefer Pimsleur to Duolingo, and I think these resources are good. In this. And everyone's going to have different opinions and different strategies as well. But that you don't, you don't come into it from the first time with that knowledge. And so, especially for a subject you can only learn once, uh, this, this can create a lot of frustration because it's like, oh man, if I'd only known this, I would have done it differently from the beginning. So meta-learning is what I talk about in my book of this process of kind of like preparing your map of like, what does this skill actually look like? How do people learn it? How is it organized? What are going to be the bottlenecks? Like what is going to be the difficulty? Like what is going to be the thing I have to focus on in order to get good at this? And there's different levels of abstraction there. So learning a language, for instance, we can talk about it at a very basic level. We know that there's going to be vocabulary, pronunciation, grammar. So vocabulary is going to be things you have to memorize. Grammar is going to be a kind of procedural skill. It's going to be kind of like how do you assemble the little parts into a sentence the correct way. Uh, and, you know, depending on the language, that could be fairly simple, like Chinese, where you're just kind of ordering words, or it could be like Russian, where you have also like all these cases and inflections and stuff. Um, and then there's going to be pronunciation, which, uh, again, for some languages is going to be relatively trivial. If you're an English speaker, Japanese and Spanish, not going to be too hard, probably. Uh, Mandarin with its tones is going to be very hard. <laughs> um, you know, and then there's like you know, uh, indigenous languages in the Amazon that are like near impossible. They've got so many phonemes. So if you have this kind of abstract, okay, very high level, these are what I'm going to have to build in. But then you break it down further. So if I know I'm learning Mandarin, for instance, I can look up, okay, well, I know it has characters. How many characters does the average person need to know to like read or to be able to function? So if I'm also trying to be literate, um, I know that, well, you probably need between two and 2,000 and 3,500 to, um, to be able to, to read things. Okay. I know that most words are actually not one character, but more than one character. They're usually like in, in modern matter. And I would say the majority of words are disyllabic. So you have two characters next to each other. That's how words are formed. Um, and then I'm going to dig deeper. I'm going to figure out well, how do characters work? And I look it up and I'd be like, okay, well, uh, you know, some of the characters are pictures. A lot of them are more like rhymes. Like it's like this sounds like another thing that it's, you know, that has a picture. Um, and there's different kinds of, you know, you know that they're organized by radicals. So that's how you look them up in the dictionary. Um, maybe you like go in even deeper and you can be like, oh, okay, well, you know, there's a method for learning the characters where you're figuring out like kind of how they came about, like their etymology and this kind of thing. So this is sort of like, I'm not saying you would necessarily come to all those conclusions if you just Google like how to learn Mandarin or how to learn characters or how do Chinese characters work. But let's say if you knew you were going to spend at least 100 hours learning it and you spent the first 10 hours just like what are all the ways of learning Mandarin? What are all the resources? What, how does the language structured? How does it work? What do people find difficult? Blah, blah, blah. 
you're going to be much, much more well-equipped to make those decisions about how to learn and how to like guide your learning and how to have proper expectations than if it were just like, oh, Duolingo, I'm going to download that and start, start practicing. Now, again, going back to the context of this, part of the context is you have some serious goal, you're ready to start, you're going to embark on a big uh, intensive project. If you're not ready for that yet, if you're like, I don't even know whether I want to learn Mandarin, then the just learning a little bit and dabbling is not so bad because when you learn a subject, you also necessarily acquire some metalinguist or sort of um, meta learning knowledge about it. So if I start learning math, I start to also figure out, okay, what is this learning math thing like, right? Um, so you can also do it a dabbling approach, but I highly recommend the investing in the meta learning um, as a precursor to doing you know, if you're doing any kind of like, well, I'm spending the next three months full time doing this, I highly recommend, you know, spending that 10, 20 hours doing this just because if you can identify, oh, this resource works better than this for this good reason, you might save yourself 10 hours and that took 10 minutes. So, so there's a, there's a balance there. And I've made that mistake. Like, um, I, I did a project after the year without English where I was doing portrait drawing. And my naive theory of how you get good at artistic skills was that, well, I just need to draw a lot and get good feedback. And so what I was doing, my sort of technique that I was using, is I would draw a portrait and then I would take a picture of my drawing and I would overlay it transparently with Photoshop over the original image to be like, oh, I made the eyes too big or I made the head too small. And that's not a terrible technique. But the thing that I didn't realize at the time was that there are actually really good techniques for sizing things, for doing things that is not just something you just acquire from feedback. Like it's a method you have to learn. Just like, uh, you know, just like long division is a method. And, you know, if you were just given random division problems and you just guessed and got feedback, you wouldn't naturally invent long division. So, so that's an example where my meta learning research failed because I did a cursory survey of like what are techniques for portrait drawing and I didn't find this one. And so I started doing the other thing. And then about halfway through, I was like, nah, I'm kind of hitting diminishing returns. I got to go do another meta-learning research. And then I found about this technique and it helped a lot. So, so there's kind of an interplay between doing the practice and like getting the, the feedback. And one of the best ways you can get that feedback is by talking to people who've already learned it. Um, uh, sometimes this can be a little bit iffy because, well, I've been doing it for 20 years and so I totally forget how I've learned it is a problem. But, but definitely if you can find someone who's learned it recently, um, that helps. And uh, also finding people who teach it. Because if you teach it, you're regularly in contact with people who have not learned it. So talking to a teacher, even if you're not going to like attend the fancy art school, talking to someone who teaches art and be like, how would you learn to draw? They're going to have some ideas about that because they're interacting with students all the time. Or you know, maybe I can't afford the expensive all immersion Mandarin class, but I can talk to a Mandarin teacher and be like, what do I need to do to like, what resources do you recommend? And, and that would help too. So uh, doing this kind of cursory research is I think very helpful to, to overcome at least partly that paradox of how do you learn something when you don't already know it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. To wrap up, I'd love to get some words of advice from you. And that was incredibly sure. helpful because I've gone down that path myself. <laughs> and you know, you're just like, it's the, it's the typical kind of like what we talked about, the Duolingo trap. Yeah. It's like, you're like, this, everyone's doing it. And then you're like, oh my God. Yeah. Words of advice to help someone who's chosen a project mm -hmm. and helping them to stay committed to that project so they can have wins and, and keep it. Yeah. Finish well, it, see it through. So my, my advice is actually maybe a little bit counterintuitive, but I think the best way to commit to hard projects is to make them shorter and easier to commit to. 
I think the mistake most people make is that they're, and I, I mean, it sounds ironic for the guy who's doing these big, big year, year long projects, but the mistake most people make is they commit to too much. And when you commit to too much and then halfway through you find it hard and unpleasant, you're more likely to give up. But if you commit to something that's smaller, you're more likely to see it through to the end. So what I would recommend is like, for instance, if I were doing like the no English thing, I would say, try it for two weeks. Don't say, oh, I'm going to do it for three months. Try it for the first two weeks and see how it goes, right? Uh, and you can always recommit if it's working. You can always do more, but committing for smaller chunks is a little bit easier. And so that is a skill in and of itself of like, how do I break down this huge goal that is the thing I actually want into smaller like milestones that I could commit to? So I think that's one key. Uh, I think the other key is to make sure you're structuring the rewards properly in the activity. Because when you, when you fail to stick to something, usually there's a motivational deficit. And usually it's because the balance of frustrations to joys, to like wins, to happiness in the project is off center. And again, you can push through a hard project over a short period of time, but those little micro rewards I think are important. And so how you can drip that out, like we already talked about like scaling the difficulty. So you're working on things where you're like actually feeling like you're winning quite a bit of the time, even if it's like simple stuff um, is, is very important. I think, uh, you know, finding something that makes the, the activity meaningful too can also be important. Like, as I said, it's, it's one thing to be like, oh, I got 80% of my flashcards, right? Who cares to like, oh, I was able to like talk to that guy even like badly for two minutes and get what I wanted is like, yeah, you know? So, th so that makes a big difference. And I think, um, again, I think I tend to also do the other way where like, I don't commit to projects lightly either. So dabbling's fine, but I, when I'm taking on a big project, I'm taking on, like, I'm going to do this for a month. It's because I've been thinking about doing that project for a while. So I'm never like, what should I do? And then just pull it out of my hat. Oh, I guess I'm going to learn jujitsu for a month. No, it's because like I'd been obsessing about that for, I'm not learning jujitsu, but, but I've been obsessing about whatever it was for a long period of time before I like, okay, let's make the commitment. And I think that's my natural inclination. I think most people I talk to who are like maybe going to sit through an hour and a half thing where a guy's talking about learning is the kind of person who like, they have too many things they want to learn. Uh, not like, oh, I'm not interested in anything. Like you're someone who like, you, you want to learn this sport. You want to learn this language. You want to learn this subject. You want to be better at this and blah, blah, blah. If you're that kind of person, if you're like me, that kind of person, then you already have lots of things that you want to do that are percolating, right? That are like in the simmer. So it, it, that's a good thing to have. And it's good to be like, you know, I've been thinking about learning Spanish like because my girlfriend speaks it. I've been wanting to do this project for years now. Right. So when you go in and you're like, okay, for the next two months, we're only going to speak in Spanish with each other. And it's hard. I know I've been thinking about it for like two years that I want to do this and I'm excited about it. So it's easier to commit to. Whereas if it's just sort of like, uh, you know, let's just learn this random thing that I have no, like, it's never like, and I'm all going to do this for two months. And I just flippantly make that commitment. Yeah, of course you're going to give it up after like three weeks. Um, and one final advice for committing is plan your obstacles in advance. Cause I think that's another thing that people struggle with is they don't see all the ways that things are going to be difficult and you can't see all the ways, but if you do some thinking of like, well, what's a reasonable thing that's going to make this hard. So, oh, I'm speaking to my girlfriend only in Spanish, 
but uh, we have an important relationship fight and it can't do it in Spanish. So like, okay, you know, maybe let's have like a timeout rule, right? Where we can have a timeout if there's an important conversation that needs to happen. Okay, that's a mild exception. That's not so bad. Or, oh, you know, um, this is really hard because uh, we're in a group conversation setting and the other people I'm talking to are only speaking in English and like, what am I only going to speak to her in Spanish? That's weird, right? Okay, well, we'll make an exception for this. Like just doing that in advance helps because you know how you're going to handle that obstacle. And so once you're out of that group conversation, once the fight is simmered down, you guys have made up, then okay, you can go back to it because that was part of your plan initially, right? And so I think a part of the committing to things is making this you know, foreseeing this, seeing that this is going to happen. You know, when I was doing the MIT challenge, I was like, okay, I know I'm going to want to take this, you know, week off at Christmas time. I know that I'm going to need, I know that I'm going to be less productive over the year. So I need to get the class, the early classes done faster. Like these are simple things that are obvious if you think about them, but if you just commit to it without planning that, then of course your plan is going to fail. So I think if you're doing any intensive big project, whether it's learning or not, um, just like the meta-learning research, doing this kind of like, what are all the ways this is going to go wrong? Like a year from now, why did this fail? You figure out what those reasons are and then you write what your response is going to be. Even if the response is just like, okay, we just put it on pause for a week because of that reason. It helps so much more than like, well, I failed because I got sick. Well, why didn't you just say stop when I'm sick for a week? You know, like that's a good way of keeping up that, that commitment. Man, what a great place to finish. That was incredible.